Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But, you know, I want to talk about occupations first off. You know, there's some that I could never do. Policing is one of them, especially homicide. It's not just the actual body that you might find, but it would what the body that lingers in your mind. Ah, which brings us to today's book, Where the Dead Go. And welcome back, Sarah Bailey. Thank you very much for having me back. And it's a welcome back because I've read about your detective before, Gemma Woodstock. Now, the Dark Lake had her moving away from her hometown and into the night, she's in Melbourne... But this new book, uh, Where the Dead Go, it's got a beach on the cover. This is true. (laughs) So where is it set? Yeah, impossibly there's now three books. Um, And the third book sees Gemma going to a coastal town called Fairhaven, a fictional town. Um, It's sort of uh, located just north of Byron Bay. Mm. Um, and, yeah, she's sent there to – well, she opts to go there to help out on a on a case, a pretty gruesome kind of case. Now, this isn't just one crime book. Correct. You've actually meshed in a previous crime uh, that she helped discover, if you discover a crime, or um, she policed as yes. a detective. And it's still lingering in her mind. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, like you said before – Gemma is someone that carries a lot of baggage anyway. She has since I created her in the Dark Lake. And um, in between the two last books, she's worked on a case that's really sort of gotten under her skin and has really haunted her. So it was a a missing persons case that she feels like she made some poor decisions about. And so I guess she's extra cautious and wary of this new missing persons case that's come into her world. Now, when you think... Byron Bay, and mm. especially a little town further north of it, Fairhaven. It's touristy, then with backpackers, a friendly pub owner. It's a tight community. Everybody knows, though, about the father of the missing girl. He's a walking grenade. Yeah, he's, um, I think, in a way, a little bit stereotypical in that everyone knows that he's a pretty bad guy and they all um, are aware that he's quite violent at home. Um, but no one's actually intervened to the extent of removing the children or helping the wife, um, which I think is quite typical when victims don't ask for direct help. People often turn a blind eye. So he's sort of there as this um, simmering character in the community that people kind of avoid. And Abby, as a 15-year-old teenage girl, Mm. sparks his fire. Yeah, they're at loggerheads a lot. And so I think their conflict has been um, known in the community. And again, people are sort of in avoidance mode. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm going to get Sarah to read from her book. And it's a little bit about being 15, being teenagers. And I think it's just a good bit. I'm trying to summon the particular flavour of complexity that comes with being 15. I knew it then and I absolutely know it now. Teenagers are terrifyingly impulsive and skillful at making hasty decisions with horrific consequences. I've had the misfortune of standing next to many fit, strong young bodies that oozed with health before a misjudged party trick or ambitious sporting feat turned them grey and cold. 
beautiful brains broken by reckless drug taking or a thoughtless punch. It's a cruel, t- it's a cruel truth that vitality gives the young and otherworldly confidence at the exact moment their emotions rob them of sound judgment. Their desire to punish can be brutal, with suicide, drug use and theft the key weapons in their arsenal. Disappearing into thin air is another appealing option to a teenage brain, a seemingly reasonable reaction to whatever injustice they are facing, but I still doubt that Abby ran off in the middle of the night with only the clothes on her back. Mm, So, missing girl, and then what's happened to her boyfriend, Rick? He's a bit older. Yeah, he's a little bit older. Um, They've both lived in the community for a really long time. So Abby goes missing in the middle of the night, doesn't come home, um, and then the next day her boyfriend Rick turns up dead, uh, murdered at his home. And so I suppose the immediate um, considerations are whether or not she was involved in his homicide, mm. she's also been murdered, or whether she has run away or any other number of options that are viable. So there's a lot to work through. Now this community does have a chief inspector, Tommy Gordon. Correct. But he, he can't do this case. No, so coincidentally, uh, Tommy's been involved in a car accident um, the morning after um, Abby goes missing, and so he's kind of rendered um, unwell and can't work the case. So he's mentally still sort of across it, but Gemma kind of comes in to be the the body on the ground, working the case, managing his staff. His staff, bit mm. of a misogynist, isn't he? This man, he is, yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, he's got uh, another inspector who works in Byron Bay, Inspector Celia Tran, who is a woman. And he's actually got um, Edwina DeLuca Mm. as part of the squad. But she's, um, Gemma sort of thinks of her as the ice queen. Yeah, I think um, Gemma comes into their world. And so there is a lot of uh, uncertainty from the existing cop team that she comes in to manage and they're a little bit suspicious as to whether or not, you know, her motives are pure um, and whether or not she's sort of judging them differently. And I think Edwina is uh, initially very prickly toward Gemma and I think Gemma sort of sees quite a lot of herself in Edwina as Mm. well. And so they sort of have an interesting tension. Yes, there is there. Uh, So the the police team has their squad politics sort of going on. Mm. And then, of course, there's the media to deal with, with Simon Charleston from the Byron Bay News. What does he tell Abby about a similar disappearance from years ago? Yeah, Simon's kind of like the mosquito in the book. He's always Mm. just hovering around Mm. and being relatively irritating. Um, And Gemma, I think... um, finds him maddening but also realises that he might be quite helpful from an information point of view. So he lets her know that there's long been rumours of a cold case in the area perhaps not being as it seemed and the further she sort of digs into that, the further she thinks, thinks there might be a link with the current situation going on up there. And, of course, when Gemma arrived, arrived, came to Fairview, mm. it was front-page news. Yeah, but not everybody wants her there. She gets a very nasty present on her doorstep. She does. Yes, there's a, a very nasty present, which I won't spoil. But um, <laughs> it's pretty clear that she's not welcome in the town. So I think she feels a lot of hostility right from the get-go. And because she has her son with her, she's obviously mm. quite um, concerned about his welfare too. We just might move on to Gemma's private life. Gemma has an eight-year-old son, and this is a quote from the book. I essentially deactivated my parenting licence for years, four years ago. I played an active support role, cheering and enthusiastically from the sidelines. So what happened to Ben's dad? Yeah, so uh, Gemma moved to Melbourne and decided to leave her son with her ex, 
who is very safe and a fantastic father. So she felt like that was actually the best decision for her son. Um, and she's been involved in his life, but very much from afar, almost sort of like a um, aunt kind of figure, I suppose. And then Scott is um, terminally ill at the, at, at the beginning of the book, and that's mm. why she's gone home, because she needs to become the sole carer of Ben which has really ruined her entire plan um, from a career perspective. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So straight after the funeral, Mm. she gets offered this job. Yes. So why does she take it then? I think Gemma's DNA always has her avoiding difficult scenarios and so while she instinctively feels the need to look after Ben. She really hates being in her hometown and she's really looking to escape. She's already been back there for six weeks when the book Mm. begins. So this sort of seems like a lifeline um, and she uses it as an excuse to say she sort of needs time to think um, whether or not that's true. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, you know, she and she constantly worries whether she's a competent mother, and so do we. I think as readers. yeah, I think the judgment that she feels from all avenues of her life, while she still makes relatively challenging decisions from a typical parenting point of view, she she definitely feels very self conscious about people judging her as a parent. Even her best friend Candy understands why she has to go, but gives her this advice: come back with a plan. <laughs> Well, will that include Mac? Now, who is he and how are they connected? Yeah, so Gemma's, um, since the second book ended, has um, moved to Sydney and has met a person um, who used to be in the police world and is sort of now like a consultant. Um, he's a bit older, very stable, very patient, but really intellectually her equal, mm. which I think she's been scrambling for for sort of quite some time. So they make an unlikely but I think a, a really good pair. Um, and then obviously her ex-partner dying and Ben becoming her full-time responsibility again really throws that relationship up in the air a little bit. Yeah. Prior to this book, her sex life was pretty much one-night stands, wasn't it? <laughs> pretty hectic, yeah. <laughs> it was. And as you say, Mac, um, we learn about how they got together through the, the other case and you know how well, not only is he the intellectual equal, he's also the physical equal. Correct, yeah. <laughs> in the sexual delights. Then in the middle of the book, we get an oh no moment with another personal insight into Gemma's problems. Oh, she just doesn't really expect to have a fulfilling relationship, does she? No, I think she is kind of... Um fated to the idea that her relationships are going to be quite chaotic Um, but she does really like him and I think that the stakes are higher because she is invested and she hasn't been invested like this before so it's it's challenging her in ways that she's not used to. And then of course there's this big question because they all know every all the police know the community knows that she's come straight from from her part or Scott's funeral Ben's dad's funeral Mm. and bringing all this so they actually question whether she is overwhelmed yeah whether she's competent um which is her least favorite thing to be questioned about i think so she reacts very stubbornly to the notion that she might not be up to the task (laughs) especially when she got got a note under a windscreen leave now your son doesn't deserve to be an orphan yes which also challenges her because she knows that the risk-taking behavior she often um, demonstrates is something that she's also judged on Mm. Look, you've divided the book into segments of the days that Abby is missing and even the times of the day. The book runs over the Easter weekend too. So why did you choose that? 
Um, well, I think the procedural nature of the book is it matches the other books. So there was a consistency piece, but it does, I think, also drive the book on in terms of momentum. So it's sort of first day missing, second day missing. So you get a real sense of how desperate the police are to find this missing girl or at least locate and determine what happened to her. And the Easter weekend just gave the opportunity of a little bit of um, public holiday, people being away. There was a slightly eerie feeling to the town, more tourists in the town Mm. as well. So it just sort of helped to create the right atmosphere. Sarah Bailey has written a beautiful piece about the effect of missing children or missing people on the family and everything. This is from page 178. I haven't worked many missing person cases, only five over the past decade, but they are an especially brutal form of mental torment. The missing tend to take on a mythical quality. The possibility they are alive muddies the waters and weakens the practical instincts a dead body demands. It's a bizarre, drawn-out dance between hope and hopelessness. I already know that while I'll look for Abby beyond all reason, that I will prepare to discover her corpse the whole time I'm doing this. I will pray that she is the one who gives the finger to the bleak statistics, that somehow... I will cheat the odds and bring her home. More than anything, I don't want her to go to the place in my mind reserved for the long dead faces from squad room case boards and into the metaphorical graveyard that I rake over and over, looking for answers that will probably never be found. That's a really good reason why I never want to be a police person. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's a missing girl and a murdered boyfriend. Their crimes run deep in a touristy town and investigated by an unpopular out-of-town detective with her own personal problems. I'm speaking with Sarah Bailey about her book, Where the Dead Go, by Alan and Unwin. Don't you just love good crime fiction and detective? Look, every page, I thought, think, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So, and don't you and love coming in that. here, Jan, to talk about such things? And and but speaking... You can't, you can't talk about the end. I'm sorry. You can't talk about the end, but you can talk about the love which drives the novel. <laughs> I, I think you might be picking up... I'm, I'm working towards a segue here because my guest today is Marique Hardy... And we're talking about the Melbourne Writers' Festival when we talk about love. So, Marie, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me back, friends. Well, the first thing is uh, Melbourne Writers' Festival, 30th of August. It's next week. It's It's next week. I'm not even kidding you. It's next week. But how are you feeling? Relaxed. Pretty relaxed. Relaxed. You seem fairly, you know. Fairly. Have it together? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm fine. It's great. The theme of this is when we talk about love and I looked and I thought oh how common how ordinary until I opened the program and seeing how love permeates every aspect of our lives culturally socially emotionally even just listening to Sarah and what drives the characters in her novels yeah how do you come up with the concept of of what theme it's going to well, I mean, last year's festival theme was a matter of life and death, yes. which to me was also a very broad umbrella and encompassed family and letting go and resilience and grief. And I do think some of those themes work this year. So it's not just about romantic love, but it is about connection and belonging and, and passion, passions, passions for the planet, passions for the environment, passions for literature and words, the way we tell stories. So it's incredibly broad to me, sex and bodies and home. And yeah, so I think the theme works on myriad levels so choosing a, a grand theme seems to be the way to encompass it all but when i looked at some of 
the um, sort of speakers and authors and segments, I was amazed at just how prescient uh, it is. For, so, for example, you've got Louise Milliken yes, coming in. If only she was in the news of late. Oh, my God, she is. <laughs> but, I mean, it it speaks to, well, the, we're talking about the Peltrol. She wrote yeah. the book Cardinal. Yeah. But how significant that issue is in the lives of the people, how uh, it's in the uh, view of the public at the moment, just as the abortion issue is in in New South Wales. These are issues that are are currently challenging and and facing us. And you've got um, the uh, Louise Swan talking about... Yes, yeah. She's got a a book called Choice Words, which is people writing about abortion. And I think that to me, when we... I mean, there are 349 events in this festival, (laughs) 349 in 10 days, and it was really interrogating that theme. So we have... Um, we have an event about sex work in literature with sex workers who are writers as well. We have one about the intersection between sexuality and disability. We have one about family violence. We have one about um, Ginger Gorman who wrote a book about trolling, which is the opposite of love. We're talking about hate online. So I do think there are ways to that, that the theme ripples out as well. Well, yes, and, and it's, it's so relevant. Now, the other interesting thing is you seem to go for something that's tangible that you can actually put your hands on. So this year, for example, you've got the Museum of Broken Relationships. Yes. That's a, had you heard of that project before? I hadn't, no. Oh, my goodness. Well, it started in Croatia, in Zagreb, um, by an ex-couple who were both artists, and they broke up, and they were looking at all the objects in their breakup, which, of course, mean not half a bus ticket, which no one else would, would think of anything, but is imbued with meaning when it's part of your romantic relationship. And they were looking at these, and because they're artists and wonderful people, they decided to make a museum space where members of the public could donate anonymously items about the end of a relationship, whether it be romantic romantic or due to death or due to the end of a friendship or just someone that you lo- a lost connection so it is an it is an object of stories and an object of letting uh, a museum of letting go and objects so they're bringing over items from the international collection and they're also curating a melbourne specific collection so we've been having uh, objects donated they're in the office behind my desk at the moment. There's some amazing objects sitting behind my desk at the moment. But this speaks to so many things. They, well, first and foremost, you seem to want to put into a festival something concrete and tangible and tactile. So in many ways, last year it was the Animal Church. Animal Church. Yes. This year, the museum. Yes. Uh, is this one of your hallmarks? Yes, I think so. And thanks for noticing. It is like, I mean, the Museum, museum of Broken Relationships for me is the heart of this year's festival. And it was a project that I'd seen, I think, in 2016. And there's a permanent one in Los Angeles. I went there. So I loved it. And it was a dream project. I thought, I'm sure I can never bring it to Australia. And the fact that we've managed to do it is just a heart project come to life. It's never been to Australia before and the touring exhibition with the two curators are coming here. Um, and then last year the Animal Church was the central centrepiece of the festival as well. So, yeah, absolutely. But it, it also speaks to the need people have to express themselves. I'm thinking of letters to Juliet, uh, keys on a bridge and, yeah. and things like this. People seem to want to find something, some way of expressing it. Well, don't we find, I mean, symbolism is so important, especially in things like grief um, and letting go and things that we either, you know, we burn or we bury or we padlock or we something. We want to show ways that 
are, are tangible ways that our, our feelings are represented, I think. So any, any space that you can give for people to, to let go or lock or bury or burn is very important to me. I mean, the Animal Church people donated photographs of their long-lost pets, which were very beautiful part of last year's festival. And this year... The, the the items are pretty far ranging. <laughs> There's some pretty weird ones in there. But also, then it speaks to the tangibility of books, yeah, as well. Well, it's also, I mean, I I my passion is reframing the festival as a celebration of stories and storytelling, as opposed to all stories need to be told between two covers because all of us are human beings in the world trying our best. All of us have stories. All of us have lived experience. We've all grieved and loved and lost. And so the artists who are in the festival have experienced all the same things as the audiences have. And it's about how to create that connection between them. Museum of Broken Relationships is a really big part of that, but also the events that hopefully we curate and program where people are speaking about motherhood and home and family and letting go and death. And they might be authors and artists whose names you recognize, and they're speaking about their human experience and for me that that is a strong part of the empathy and curation but also then the experience of others um also impacts on our own lives on the on the lives of the audience now what i'm thinking of here is sex scandals in oh, history and yeah. political history and, and political history nikki Sava, who does not want to hear her and fiona Patton talk about sex scandals in but, history but my this, god this resonates because these people the people that are having these sex scandals in our political lives yeah. influence our oh, own oh, lives well, i mean barnaby joyce robo calling everyone and all the women to tell them what to do with their bodies the balls on that man <laughs> i i ask you <laughs> Honestly, yes. Unfortunately, it is very, um, it is very, it's happening right now. So, yeah. Your introduction in in the program, it is said that love conquers all, but the all-consuming emotional state we call love is capable of so much more than that. It stirs our creative spirits, brings us to our knees, inspires songs and sonnets and paintings and volumes, and breaks us into tiny pieces and glues us back together again with gold adhesive. Yeah, I'm such a lover, aren't I? I'm such a sook, (laughs) such a big romantic sook. You you start with a phrase that is a cliché, love conquers all. Yeah. And it sort of reminds me of Chaucer, um, Amor on the Vinci uh, sort of thing. But at the same time then, um, I'm passionate about Shakespeare's sonnets. You, you've got something that is so intrinsic to literature and art and culture uh, and has inspired so many things. I mean, the topic. both ends of the spectrum. It's extraordinary. Yeah, well, so much, I mean, look, so much yearning made so much great art and continues to make so much great art. But you think about it's not just sexual yearning or romantic yearning. Sarah Ferguson's book about her mother is a book about love. Richard Flanagan, Narrow Road to the Deep North, is a love letter to his father. I mean, the ways that love creates the work that we put into the world can be about our own healing and our own catharsis, or it can be a specific work for someone else. So, yeah, I think um, it really holds together for me. Now, I've got a very serious question Uh-oh. for you, and it's it's the question I had at the end of our interview last year. Okay. I want to talk about KPIs. Oh, I mean, there is so much pressure. I mean, you, you copped a little bit of flack. Did I? Last year. What? I mean, no, but, everyone loves me. Yeah, I'm no, so nice. You are. Indeed. I know. I get really <laughs> I can see it in your I face. Know. People get really mad at me. I'm like, you don't know me. I'm I just love nice. talking to you, Marie. Yeah, you should. But <laughs> how how do you, how does one assess um, the value of uh, a writer's festival? Because um, you can talk about ticket sales, you can talk about 
audience numbers, but in some ways that doesn't come to terms with what a writer's festival does. No, well, I mean, I'm sure we had that question last year because I didn't know what a KPI was when I started <laughs> this job because I've been a freelance artist for 20 years and a writer. And so now I know what they are. Key performance indicators for. just I, for the listener. I yeah. know, but I still think I don't really get it. I Because I haven't worked in, I guess, arts or management or corporate world, they just say, do your job properly. What's the point of them? Don't you have to do your job properly? It's in your contract. Why do you need this whole other list of things which say, don't bugger it up? You're like, well, I won't because otherwise you'll sack me. KPIs drive me crazy. But- anyway, my personal <laughs> KPIs, obviously I want to do a good job for the board and I want the festival to go well, but I also want to put meaningful things in the world. When I die, I want to know that the art that I make has connected people and done something more tangible than succeed or be ambitious or anything like that. And so my personal KPIs, being on the ground and seeing people have that human experience and that connection. And I was there on the ground last year. I was at Magda Zabanski's pretend funeral. I was in the animal church for the pet remembrance ceremony. We did an event called Eulogy to My Career and Yasmin Abdel-Majid and um, Yumi Steins both spoke very eloquently and passionately about what they'd experienced um, through public beatings, I suppose, through in the press. And People wept and people felt closer and that is the most important thing for me, that someone feels less alone in the world, that they uh, feel seen and to be to see and be seen. I be think. seen, to be touched by something yeah, and to go away with a thought, a memory. Or a hope, yeah, you know, that, that, that you don't just go home. I mean, the world is really hard and we're all trying our best. So to have a feel like there's a human connection somewhere on the ground, that's that makes me happy. We need an HCI, human connection indicator. Okay. Perhaps. I'll go back to the board and say that. Well, bugger my KPIs, but I've got HCIs for you guys. What do you think? Look, we're going to run out of time. but Oh, but numbers. You've already said... 349. Oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. Well, last year was 400 events in 10 days, but 349, and because you put your blood in all of them and you do try and care for your artists, so if they are speaking about the death of a parent or a, a, the end of a marriage, you, you care for them, and that's a lot of artists and a lot of – so you wake up at 3 in the morning and go, oh, God, we haven't told that person there's a different moderator on there and they're speaking about something diff- difficult and I want to make sure that they're safe. And oh. Do you um, – silly question in some ways. Do you meet – Every one of these? No, I I mean, I try my best. I try and... um I meet a lot of the internationals. I spend half the festival in the hotel lobby making sure my internationals arrive safe and are checked in and I give them a cuddle on their way in. There with open arms for Ronan Farrow last year, open arms for Irvine Welsh. J.M. Kurtzay doesn't like hugs. I shook his hand. I read the body language there. I'm a real hugger. But you know when you can sense someone going, no, 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 no. So I was like, hey, John. I'll I'll shake your hand, John. Um, so I do that. I try and I mean I try and make sure all the artists feel respected and heard. But we have a beautiful team. Our team in the green room will be looking after them and stuff as well. So I feel safe in that regard. And how many on the team? How many yeah. in, in our team at the moment is about twelve. But we have 300 volunteers. We have, you know, our volunteers are incredible. And, I mean, you would know from going to a writer's festival, they're the people that you interact with. And they're usually so passionate about the festival themselves. They've been before. They know what it's like on the ground. And they can, you know, obviously we've moved to the State Library this year as well, so they'll be showing people around the new precinct. Um, So, yeah, it ends up being... our core team is six people full time, yeah. expands but to about 12 during, you know, pre and post festival. And then during festival, you've got all the vols as well. And that's such a small number I to me, know. given what you do. I know, it's insane. <laughs> what are we thinking? You, you've mentioned the library. 
does yeah. the venue have an impact on how something is received or presented? Or I anything? think so. And I mean, look at what we've been talking about. There's a lot of quite intimate topics there. Mm. And I actually love Deacon Edge, which we, we, we use, you know, for 10 years, which is in Fed Square. I love that as a venue. It's so warm, particularly mm. at the end of winter and the lights sort of streaming and through. And the wood. But yeah. 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 Um, but this year we've got the Isabella Fraser Room in the library, which is really beautiful. Village Roadshow Theatre. We're using Story Hall, the new Capital Theatre, which is very beautiful. We're using on our opening weekend. So there are lots of spaces and it is important. But again, I think sometimes the intimacy comes from what that person is speaking about and that laser beam that goes right through to the heart of someone in the audience. That can be anywhere. Now, dare I ask... You can ask me anything. Your favourite... My favourite... Or your favourite session, your favourite author. Is there something that... They're like my children. That you have invested more love into than any other? (laughs) No, no. I've got quite a big crush on Patrick DeWitt, but I don't think that's what you're talking about specifically, is (laughs) it? Well, it it could be. That's how you interpret the question. No, I love all of them, but there's a lot of little, you know, sleeper events that... I mean, we're doing a fake wedding reception for Yumi Stein, so that's all she knows is she's turning up and she doesn't know who's in it and what's going to happen. There's an event at the Toffin Town where... There is a service where you get to marry your friends, which the performance poet Emily Zoe Baker is conducting a ceremony. So you get to come along with your friends who are often your chosen family and often with you through richer, through poor and sickness and in health. So she's doing a one hour service on our Saturday morning where you can come with your friends and marry them. Wow. So those what, are ones that maybe don't not, not high in the program, but my heart is in those yeah, ones Yeah, but, the, but the, the challenge to one's thinking as well, just to perceive something in a, in a new way. That's fantastic. I love it. I mean, oh, what, what else can I love I you. There we go. Look <laughs> at all the love in this room. What about the mess of lament? Oh, yes. That's, I'm working with Casey Bonetto on that at the moment, and that's going to be amazing. That's our closing event in the quote-unquote divorce court, which is our top in town. So marriage is going to be wedding chapel first weekend, divorce court second weekend. I mean, why did you? I mean, you, you've disillusioned us. All love is about letting go. All love is finite, whether in death or relationship breakup. All love is finite. That's what's beautiful about it and precious because it doesn't last. But on the same, well, on opposing pages in the program, yeah. we have the wedding chapel followed by the divorce yeah, court. It's a reality learn check. learn how to there. let go. Uh, Marie, we are actually going to have to finish it there because ruminations is waiting outside, but... Jan. Always, always a delight to have readers and people who love books here. Or love a cuddle. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Cuddle. Oh, and we'll have some more authors to cuddle next week. So uh, we've got to get out of here. Uh, so I'm it's... thanking Sarah Bailey for her book, uh, Where the Dead Go by Anna Nunwin. And I'd been talking to Marie Hardy when we talk about Love the Melbourne Writers Festival. Thank you, one and all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.